Well, this morning, uh, we're looking at one of the passages in John's gospel that's called uh, kind of one of the, the crown jewels of John. When people who have read John or have maybe grown up in and around the church, when they, they think of some of the, the sort of key verses, the key stories that stand out, uh, this is one of them. Uh, maybe some of the, the top, top 10 lists or so might be, you know, John 3.16 and John 3.17. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Uh, John 10.10, 10, of course, where Jesus says, you know, a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but, but I've come to bring life and life to the full. I've come to give you abundant life. Uh, my favorite first memory verse that got me out of uh, jail in many summer camp wide games, of course, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept, which is, of course, you know, a, a lot deeper than just those two words seem to say. Uh, we'll get there in a few weeks as well. Uh, but this passage that we're about to look at ranks up pretty high on that list. Lots of people point to it as one of their sort of favorite stories or favorite interactions of Jesus. Uh, we're looking at John 8. 1 to 18. So if you have a Bible, you can open up there. Uh, and it's the story of a woman caught in adultery. Now, if you're not familiar with it, you might, might wonder why it is such a popular one. Well, we're going to see a number of things from Jesus that really kind of raise this up the list. We're going to see him exercising his authority. He, he forgives the woman as only God can do. We're going to see him uh, displaying for us again his wisdom and how he deals with the crowd and the scribes and the Pharisees especially. And we're going to see that he's also about mercy and grace and love. But just before we get to the text, let me ask you a question that I already know the answer to. Have you ever been caught doing something wrong? Kids, if you're still watching with us, uh, have you ever done something that you, you knew maybe you weren't supposed to do and then you uh, decided to go play somewhere else far away from mom and dad or teacher or grandparents or whoever else? Uh, parents, have you ever find, found a trail of chocolate chips or crumbs from the plate of once full of cookies on the kitchen table up the stairs to your kids' rooms? When we get older, we try to find a little bit different ways to hide things, don't we? And someone asks, hey, how are you doing? We answer, fine. Maybe we answer with a couple more words, but we, we don't actually unpack everything that's going on in our lives. Maybe we admit that we are having a hard time with a couple things, uh, some sort of uh, nagging sin or some, something that's just not going our way, but we only open up and confess the little things. So we kind of appear to be vulnerable, but we don't talk about the big stuff we've got hidden under the rug. How often do you find yourself struggling with something and yet still working so hard to keep it covered up? Why do we do that? Why do we, why do we hide these things? If you remember from the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we're introduced to our first parents, our first people, Adam and Eve, and it says that, that they lived in the Garden of Eden with God and that they were, they were naked and unashamed. When the whole world, when everything was as it was created to be, shame was not a thing. There was nothing hiding in the shadows of the relationship between Adam and Eve or between them and God. But when they made the decision, when they made the choice to not trust God and turn away from him, which is what we call sin, everything changed and right away we see shame enter the picture. 
just like the kid who's been caught with chocolate around his mouth, they too tried to run and hide from God. And people have been doing the same thing ever since. In the passage this morning, we're going to see two different responses to people being caught in their sin. On the one hand, we'll see the woman caught in adultery. But on the other, we're also going to see the religious leaders who are caught in their own sin and have their own hearts exposed as well. And we'll see how differently they respond. And ultimately, what we'll see through the way Jesus uh, interacts and responds to them is we'll see two things. First, we can't hide anything from Jesus. But second, and maybe more importantly, we don't need to. Instead of condemnation, Jesus offers and shows mercy. And that's really good news for every single one of us who are guarded, who are hiding something, who are, who are letting our real selves or holding our real selves pretty close to the vest because we're, we're worried about being fully seen and, and fully known because we might be rejected. We might be condemned. Maybe we expect someone to say, listen, if that's really you, I want nothing to do with you. We expect if if I'm perfectly vulnerable, if I let you know everything, you will reject and condemn me. And so instead of risking that, I play it all pretty close to the vest. Now, just before we dig into the text, we do need to address something that you probably see in your Bibles when you open up to John 7, 53, or the beginning of chapter 8. If you look there, you probably see some sort of note in asterisks or ellipses or, or a point to a footnote that says, the earliest manuscripts don't include these verses. Here's what that means. Most scholars today believe that, that these verses were added into John's gospel later. And in fact, most believe that John probably actually didn't write these words. Uh, the note in my Bible says sometimes this passage is placed in a different spot. Uh, once even it's, it's put in Luke in some of the older uh, manuscripts. But there's a lot of reasons that we, we don't believe this is original to John's gospel or to John. They're missing, first of all, they're missing from the earliest copies of the gospel of John that we have. But they're present in some that show up a few centuries later. When our earliest church fathers are writing their commentaries on John's gospel, they write up to John 7.52, and then they pick it up again at 8, uh, verse 12. So it's like it wasn't there. When we look at the, the Eastern church, and we look at the Eastern church fathers, uh, no one cites this passage until about the 10th century there. And actually, when you, when you really look at the language in, in English as well as the original language, it kind of reads and sounds more like Luke than John. Now, all of that said, there is little reason for us to doubt that this event actually happened. It seems that that this particular story, or one very similar to it, uh, was passed down through oral history, which was both very common and very reliable in the first century, or the story was found in, in other writings from about the same time. And so even though these verses don't show up in the biblical manuscripts until maybe the third century or so, maybe even a bit later, it's very likely that this event did occur and that these verses were added to illustrate uh, what Jesus has been just talking about. Remember, if we go back to John 7.24, he says, Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Use right judgment 
And next week, we'll see in 8.15, John says, you judge by human standards, but I judge no one. So this seems like a, a good illustration to be plunked in here. There's other reasons, and we can talk more about them later if you like. But what do we make of the fact that, that John 8, 1 to 11, maybe wasn't even written by John? Well, skip forward right to the end of the gospel, to John 21, verse 25. What, is, what does John say for us there? He says this, there were, there were also many other things that Jesus did. And if we wrote every one of them down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. And so we can, we can confidently say that these verses are one of those stories. That it's, it's because it's found in other writings not long after the time of Jesus, scholars agree that this is a true account of an interaction with Jesus and of something that Jesus has done. We can trust that this story is reliable and true and was passed down properly. And it's important to note that, that this doesn't add anything new to Jesus. It's not a new teaching as well. So we can trust it. The, the things we find about who he is and what he says and what he does, we can find in other scriptures as well. If we did delete these verses from our Bibles, we would still believe in the same Jesus. So with all of that, let me start reading the passage for us. And as I do, let's, let's as well try to, to place ourselves in the scene. I don't know if you've watched any of the Chosen series, uh, but we've been watching that a little bit lately, and, and to have some pictures in our minds of what's going on is really helpful. So as we read these verses, put yourselves in the scene if you can. We start reading in chapter 8. Then they each went to their house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Again, this is really common for Jesus to do. The other Gospels say that he stayed out by the Mount of Olives. Maybe he was staying with Lazarus and Mary and Martha at the time. Verse 2, early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. This is, again, really typical of Jesus. He's, he's going to the temple, and, and he, he sees the people start to gather around him. He, he took the posture of a rabbi, of a, of a teacher, and he sat down and began to speak, began to teach them. Let me read in verse 3 that he got interrupted. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in his midst. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? But they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, as we're picturing this scene and, and picturing ourselves in this scene, there's a couple of things we need to remind ourselves of. Again, we're told right at the outset, this is at the temple. The temple is the center of Jewish culture and political and religious life. Jesus in, is in the middle of this extremely important place, teaching a crowd, and onto the scene burst these religious leaders who are kind of dragging with them this woman caught in sin. Picture the scene. Imagine the ruckus. Imagine the stirring of the crowd as these uh, scribes and Pharisees push their way to get front and center to be right in front of Jesus. And then as they hear what, they've, what the accusations that come out, as they then would try to strain and listen to say, okay, what's going to happen? What's Jesus going to do here? The second thing we want to know is these are the scribes. The scribes are here. They're not often uh, pointed to in John, which is why this seems maybe more like Luke might have written this, or it fits better there. But these 
men, the scribes, were sort of the, the highest of the Pharisees. They weren't just the religious leaders, but they were the most studied expositors, the most studied teachers of the law and of Moses. They were the ones who knew it the best in all of the land. And so because of that, they kind of became seen by the people as sort of the lawyers, the, the ethicists, the theologians, the catechists, the one that teach the law, and the jurists, the ones enforcing the law. The last thing we need to remember as we look at this scene here is what this woman is accused of. It's adultery, which is something D.A. Carson says is not a sin one commits in splendid isolation. It takes two to tango, as they say, and so we're left wondering where the man is because he would be just as guilty as she as we read these verses 5 and 6, show us that the scribes and Pharisees here are, are more interested in trapping Jesus than they are in having justice meted out here. They don't care about this woman. They're using her, and there's actually a really good chance that they set her up, and the man who's not present was actually in on it. And then as they come and bring her to Jesus, they actually misquote Moses and misquote the law they claim to love so much. It is written in Deuteronomy 22 that if a, if a betrothed woman, one that's not yet married but engaged, is sexually unfaithful to her fiancé, then both offending parties are to be punished. But again, the man's not here. If you've been tracking with us for the last number of weeks, we've been going through the last, these, these last three chapters of John, five, six, seven, and now eight, We keep seeing that the religious leaders are trying to find a way to accuse and even kill Jesus, and they think they've got him here. They figure if if Jesus comes out and says, well, forget Moses, forget the law, then his credibility is tarnished. He can be branded as just some lawless person, and maybe even they can charge him in court. And if Jesus does what they say, if he goes along with them and says, you're right, kill her for this offense, then he's stepping into a a legal realm by sentencing her to death, but he's stepping into a place that only the Romans had the authority. Remember, around Easter, around the crucifixion, the Jews tell Pilate, listen, we want him killed. We can't do that. Only the Romans can sentence capital punishment. And so they think either we're going to get him by him breaking the law and we can throw him away, or he's going to follow the law to the letter as we've sort of given it to him here, and then the Romans can deal with him. What we see is that the leaders here have found themselves so blinded by their own self-righteousness, their own pride, and their own anger at being called out by Jesus, is that they're trying to get rid of him, and they have uh, concocted what they think is just a foolproof plan to do so. As one writer says, they know exactly what they're doing here. They don't care about the woman. In this moment, they don't care about the law. They want to put Jesus back up against a wall, and they want to force him to answer an impossible question in the midst of a huge crowd in the most important place in Israel. Again, imagine the crowd watching all this happen, holding their breath, just waiting to see what Jesus would do. And what does he do? Look at the end of verse 6. Jesus bent down 
and he wrote with his finger on the ground. Jesus was probably still seated when they burst on the scene here, and so he leans over and starts writing with his finger in the dust on the ground. Man, I, I wish I was there to see those letters, hey? There's, there's lots of theories of what Jesus wrote, none, of course, which can be proven for sure. Some suggest that, that Jesus realized this was a really hard challenge he was being put into, and, and something that was common for teachers to do of the day was just sort of doodle while they collected their wits. Maybe he did that. Some say Jesus was maybe writing part of Jeremiah 17, 13 on the ground where uh, the prophet writes, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spirit of living water. That seems good, but it's a good potential. We talked about living water last week, right? Maybe like the Romans said, he was writing out the sentence he was about to declare. Others say maybe Jesus actually wrote from Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 and 7, where we read there, Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. How's that for pointing at these leaders' hearts? Or verse 7, Have nothing to do with a false charge, and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. The truth is we, we don't know what Jesus wrote but we can imagine what his bending down to write did in that moment. Now for the religious leaders, they were annoyed and they saw him as stalling. And so we read in verse seven that they persisted in questioning. Jesus, we're talking here. They were urging him to answer. But again, put yourself in that scene and think of the woman. She had been caught in the act of adultery, grabbed, dragged through the city, right to the temple, to the center of everything, to the center of this big crowd, the center of of everything Jewish, and then singled out by the Pharisees. This woman was caught in the act. Every single eye in the place would have been on her. Talk about feeling ashamed. But I bet the second that Jesus leaned over to write something in the dirt, every single eye turned to him and what he's writing. The woman would no longer be the center of attention. Jesus would be. And this is just a a beautiful act of, of even compassion on Jesus' part. He's not flustered. He's not defensive. He won't be coerced or forced into an answer. He just bends over to draw or write in the sand. Verse 7 and 8. They persisted in asking Jesus for an answer, and so then he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then once more he bent down to write in the ground. He stands up, he says one thing, and goes back to writing. The words that he spoke point us back to Deuteronomy 13 and 17. So he's, he's quoting the law to these lawmen. He's saying that the witness of the crime must be the first to throw a stone, and they must not be participants in that crime itself. I think this short response of Jesus does at least two things. One, it does uphold the law, but it also exposes the hearts of the religious leaders who have set this whole thing up. 
See, Jesus knows the law better than they do. He knows the law says don't bring a charge against anyone with with evil intent in your heart. And he says don't join together, or the law says, excuse me, don't join together with others to maliciously prosecute someone, which is why some suspect Jesus wrote those Deuteronomy verses in the dust. See, Jesus knows that for these leaders in this moment, their intent is not following God. Their intent is not caring for Israel. It's not even for upholding the law. But in their hearts, they just want to destroy him. So Jesus knows their hearts and exposes their motives. And again, I think once again, as as Jesus bends down or sits back down to write, the focus shifts. First in the scene, the, the, the focus was on the woman. Jesus bent over to write, and the focus shifted to him. And what, he, what was he going to do? How was he going to deal with this? Why is he doodling in the dust? And then he stands up and says these pointed words. And I think we could imagine that the focus of the crowd would now shift back to the religious leaders, to the scribes and Pharisees, who have just been called out and had their sin exposed. Those words of Jesus would have been ringing in every Jewish ear that, wait a minute, he's calling something out here. One of the most common titles for Jesus in the Gospel of John is light. And actually, the very next verse after this story that we'll start next week with, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. And so much of John's Gospel here is is written and focusing on the light coming to expose the darkness. I don't know how much time you spend on, on YouTube or or, or not, but for me, it doesn't take long until, as I'm you know, watching music videos or catching up on sermons or posting ours or whatever else, it doesn't take long before some video comes up and the suggestion's on the side with, this guy destroys this other guy. This point of view destroys this other point of view. Our world is so divided. We're split into tribes. We're split into parties left and right, right and wrong, and the list goes on. But when we read the scriptures, we we need to make sure that we don't take that current context that we live in and our heated societal and political climate and read that into the text. I don't think Jesus would be happy if this passage made it onto YouTube and it was titled, Light Destroys Darkness. See, Jesus' mission in coming to earth was not to destroy people. It was not to destroy his opponents, but to be light and to shine that light and to expose the darkness and call people to do something about it, to call us to repentance. One writer says, exposing the evil of the religious leaders' hearts, that was a kindness. The picture here is of a compassionate and wise Jesus who with just a simple question calmly and lovingly exposes their sin. Here's the point. Every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us. When Jesus shines his perfect light in our lives, we find sin. We find brokenness. We find the things that we thought were maybe hidden in the darkness exposed. And the question is, What will you do when Jesus shines his perfect light into your life? What are you going to do with the things that were once in darkness that Jesus has exposed? And I think 
there's only two options. Either we move towards Jesus or we move away from him. We can either admit and own the darkness in our lives and and confess and surrender those things to Jesus, asking him to heal us, asking him to to make us new, asking him to, to help us with those things, or we can slink away and go farther into darkness. Guess which way these religious leaders go? Verse 9. When they heard it, when they heard what Jesus had said, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and when Jesus and then Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. These guys had had the darkness in their hearts called out. And instead of repenting, instead of confessing, instead of crying out for Jesus to help, they felt shame. They moved away from Jesus, and as we'll continue to read, they kept looking for more opportunities to trap and kill him. There's a book by uh, a guy named Chip Dodd called The Voice of the Heart, and I'm quoting someone, quoting someone, quoting the book, excuse me. And in the book, Mr. Dodd writes, how we feel about shame is not a bad thing. The emotion of shame will happen when we realize the limits of our neediness and brokenness. And this doesn't humiliate us, but it leads us to humility and it gives us the opportunity to move towards Jesus, to receive his mercy, to receive his love and help. But when we feel shame and we move away from Jesus, that shame turns into a toxic shame that denies our neediness, that refuses to seek help, and eventually turns into a shamelessness that sees everyone else as the problem. That's what the Pharisees did here. They moved away from Jesus. So let me ask you, how do you deal with shame? How do you handle the light exposing things in your life? Do you move toward Jesus, or do you move away from him? Listen, the church is supposed to be the place where we, we gather together and we bring our shame to Jesus. We do this as a community, together. The church is a place where we bear one another's burdens, where we carry one another towards the great, gracious work of Jesus on the cross. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's just easier to hide behind something else. I'm too busy to deal with this. I've done all these other good things. I've accomplished so much. Let me just put a mask on and and not be vulnerable because then people might see me, well, how I really am. And ultimately, what we're doing there is we're hiding from Jesus' mercy. Back to the text. We read that Jesus is left all alone with the woman. All those who who had dragged her to this place had left, and it seems that everyone else in the crowd had had lumped themselves in and had left as well. How is Jesus going to respond? Verse 10. He stood up and he says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And he says then, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the the first time that Jesus addresses her. uh, And the, the term woman here is an entirely respectful way to speak to her. We've seen that earlier in chapters two and four. The woman is alone. The, literally, the word here literally means deserted. Everyone has deserted her and left her in front of Jesus. But Jesus didn't leave. Jesus didn't desert her. Instead of 
condemnation, which she deserves. She's done something wrong. She had sin, tricked or not. She still did something. But Jesus gives her mercy. Jesus doesn't say that her sin is, isn't a big deal. He doesn't say, well, just try better next time. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. He says he tells her, no, go and sin no more. Repent. Turn from this life. Turn to me. He acknowledges her sin, but offers her repentance. He could have judged her. He could have condemned her, and he would have been the only one in that circle that could have rightly done so. But he doesn't. He gives her mercy. Augustine writes of this scene in his kind of commentary on what's going on here. He says, there's only two left, either misery or mercy. Everyone is left, and and only the woman remains feeling the misery and the shame of her sin. But right in front of her, knowing everything about her, stands Jesus, full of mercy. Listen, we don't get to experience the mercy that, that Jesus offers until we feel the misery of our sin. Without recognizing that we have done something wrong, that we have, have gone against the creator of the universe, and without recognizing that we need help, the mercy of Jesus doesn't mean as much to us. So let me lead us to the communion table this morning with this. Are you miserable? Do you, do you see how lost you are? How stuck you are? Do you see how condemned maybe you should be? See, if we're honest with ourselves, if we want to be honest with that misery, yet not run away and hide, but stay with Jesus, he doesn't have a word of condemnation for us. He would say the same thing, I think. Go and sin no more. He wants to give us mercy. Instead of condemnation, he has a, a word of deep love. Instead of calling us condemned, he calls us beloved. He calls us sons and daughters. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text. Thank you for this event that we have. Thank you for your mercy that you give us something we don't deserve. As we turn to the communion table, I pray that this would be a time for us to remember what you did for us on the cross. We're just coming out of an Easter season where we we really dug into that, where you went to the cross to take our sins, to take all the way that we have gone our own way, to, to take all of our shame. You took that to the cross as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Paul was teaching us about communion, about the Lord's Supper, he writes this. He said, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on that night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember what I have done for you. In the same way, after he took a cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to take and eat and drink and we're going to remember that Jesus has called us to something. 
He's called us to repent. He didn't come to condemn us, but to draw us to him and offer us forgiveness. I was uh, doing some reading earlier this week, and I was reading an article on Romans chapter 8. So I want to take us there, because maybe just the, the idea of Jesus on the cross is, is just something we can't fathom. But look at these, these verses Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. I'm reading, uh, starting at verse 31. He says, Paul writes, What should we say about all these wonderful things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This woman found out in this, these verses in John that Jesus was for her. Verse 32. If, if God didn't spare even his own son but gave his son up for us, won't he also give us everything else? See, God's not just a little bit for us, but he's abundantly for us. Jesus isn't just kind of for us. He went to the cross for us. Verse 33, Paul says, Who dares accuse us when God has chosen us, chosen us for his own? He chose you. He was for you all along. Paul writes, No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. So then, who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. He is still for you. He was for you. He is abundantly for you. He chose you, has been for you all along, and he is still for you. So as we eat and drink, let's remember just how for us Jesus was that his body was broken for us. His blood was shed to be the perfect once-for-all sacrifice so that we could get back to that kingdom, that, that place where we could be with God naked and unashamed. It reminds us of what Jesus has done, and it points us to our eternal future. So let me pray for the bread and the cup, and then we'll take, eat, and drink together. And then Steve and Deb will lead us in a closing song. Thank you, Jesus, for your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. I pray that you, Jesus, the light of the world, would would shine in our lives, expose the things we have in darkness, and draw us to you. I pray that we would have the, I'm not sure if courage is the right word, but maybe the, the courage to allow you to shine your light in our hearts, and that when we're tempted to run away, that we would stand firm and we would move towards you. In Jesus' name.